That's an excerpt from Hasidic Dance from Galicia. It's performed by musician and 2012 National Heritage Fellow Andy Statman. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. This week, the National Endowment for the Arts announced the recipients of the 2012 National Heritage Fellowship. The Fellowship Award recognizes folk and traditional artists for their excellence and efforts to conserve America's culture for the future. It's the nation's highest honor in folk and traditional arts. Among this year's honorees is klezmer clarinetist, mandolin player, and composer Andy Statman. Andy is receiving his award for his outstanding work as a performer and a composer in klezmer. But as great a klezmer musician as Andy Statman may be, and believe me, he is, klezmer only tells part of the story of Andy's musical genius. Although he was born in Brooklyn, New York, Andy Statman was galvanized as a teenager by bluegrass music and learned to play the mandolin under the tutelage of David Grisman. Never content to stay musically still, Andy Statman pushed the boundaries of mandolin playing, performing with experimental bluegrass groups, even as he was drawn to jazz and the saxophone. And then in 1975, as Statman was thinking about his own Jewish musical roots, he met legendary klezmer clarinetist and NEA National Heritage Fellow, Dave Terrace, becoming Terrace's protege. The result was Andy Statman's album, Jewish Klezmer Music, which became a touchstone for the Klezmer revival. But it's impossible to put Statman in any neat musical box. The year following the success of Jewish Klezmer Music, Statman released Flatbush Waltz, which is a mandolin masterpiece of post-bebop jazz improvisations and ethnically inspired original compositions. And so it goes. Statman's released 20 of his own recordings and has performed on close to 100 others. He's worked with The Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan, Ricky Skaggs, Bela Fleck, David Grisman, Itzhak Perlman, and many others. He fronts the Andy Statman Trio, which plays weekly gigs around New York City. Given all he's accomplished and all that he continues to do, it's small wonder that Andy Statman was chosen to receive a 2012 National Heritage Fellowship. I was lucky enough to speak with Andy Statman. We talked in the kitchen of his Brooklyn home, and you'll hear the sounds of city traffic in the background. In this, the first of a two-part interview, I began at the beginning and asked Andy to define klezmer music. Klezmer music is the traditional instrumental music of the Jews of Eastern Europe in the, what they call the Pale of Settlement. It'd be the Ukraine, southern Poland, parts of Poland proper, Belarus, the areas around Romania. There were other Jewish musics in also Hungary and other places, but they were a little bit different and also other parts of Poland and uh, Lithuania. But this was sort of a unified style of music. And what's distinctive about it? Well, the emotional contact is distinctive. Basically, what it is, is it's instrumental versions of Hasidic vocal music. So it's coming directly out of the religious milieu. In fact, most of the uh, great klezmer musicians came from Hasidic families and were Hasidic. It was only when they came to America, some of them sort of went off that path, although some in Europe did also. But it was 
basically what, in a nutshell, it's, it's Hasidic vocal music played instrumentally. And it could either be actual Hasidic melodies or melodies that would, were composed by the musicians themselves that might show their creativity and virtuosity. But the feeling they would invoke is the feeling of a Hasidic melody. Hasidic music is, is very broad and, and very creative and very deep, much broader than what's, what we consider klezmer music. And also klezmer is, is also sort of a, uh, a term that was applied to the music after it was pretty much gone. That's not what the musicians themselves refer to the music as. It's, it's just traditional Jewish instrumental music, you know, from East Europe. And uh, a lot of the best musicians came to America in the 1890s and, and up until the 20s. And it sort of flourished here, became a little bit different, and then sort of uh, became dormant, died in many ways. And you helped resurrect it. Well, yeah, so to speak, yeah. I mean, that was not my intention, but, you know, I certainly played a hand in that. Well, you come from a long line of musicians, I know, on your mother's side, correct? Yeah, yeah, Cantors yeah. way, way, way back, generations and generations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Cantors going back to the... 17, mid-1700s, early 1700s. And um, when they came to America, some of them went into vaudeville and became well-known vaudeville entertainers. I had one or two cousins who were classical musicians. Probably the most famous was a uh, cousin named Sammy Fain, usually Sammy Feinberg, who was a Tim Pan Alley songwriter back in the 20s. April Love. April Love, Secret Love, I'll Be Seeing You, Love Is a Many Splendid Thing. That old feeling, I mean, he wrote, you know, it, it goes on and on. And uh, I love that old feeling. That's a great song. Yes, yeah, a fantastic song. Uh, what did you hear when you were growing up around the house? You know, I heard certainly, you know, like Guys and Dolls, Kiss Me Kate, all that stuff. Classical music, uh, we had 78s. I remember hearing like a 3 o'clock in the morning, probably by Paul Whiteman. It was a very popular waltz, probably back in the 20s. We had this Yiddish uh, theater song, folk song called Yassel, I heard. I remember that. I love that one. That was one of the first songs that really, really sent me as, you know, I really got very energized when I heard that song. That and Three O'Clock in the Morning, Yesel and Three O'Clock in the Morning. And my aunt had a record of klezmer, if you want to call them klezmer, you know, traditional Jewish, you know, Jewish tunes that my, you know, my father had grown up with, you know, the Jews from different areas used to have um, town organizations if you came from that town and they'd have um, meetings and, and balls and dinners and they'd also buy a, a common burial plot for people from a particular town and you know each town had its own customs and things and uh, 
So they used to hear all this music. My father grew up with that, with, with uh, what we call today klezmer music. So at family gatherings, when I got together with his sister and his brother, my, my uncle, um, they would put on these records, we would dance around and things like that. But also I remember when, you know, Rock Around the Clock came out and when Hamdor came out and, you know, all that stuff. I remember really liking that stuff. And uh, so I heard all the, all the early um, rock and roll, big bands. And I know when you first heard Bluegrass, that had a huge impact on you. Yeah. Yeah, a number of things coincided for me with that. So my brother, who's, you know, about seven and a half, eight years older than me, he was in a jug band. I liked it. I loved the live music, but when, when he brought home some records of uh, bluegrass, that's, I really got excited about it. And he played guitar. You know, we had guitars in the house. I'd been interested in, in uh, shortwave radio and also in getting out-of-town radio stations on the AM radio. So there were um, 50,000-watt stations then that broadcast live uh, country music. There's a, a station called WWVA from Wheeling, West Virginia, which uh, you could get right around dusk in New York and all night into the early morning. Probably going back to the 20s, but certainly still in the 60s, people would buy time on their country music or bluegrass or singers would, would buy time and have radio shows for 15 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour, an hour, to sell their products. And uh, there was this guy named Doc Williams, who was a uh, sort of traditional country music guitarist, singer, band leader. He had a nightly show on uh, WWVA during the weekdays, and then he'd appear on the Jamboree, and he'd travel throughout, say, southern Canada and, uh, you know, the Midwest, not so much the South. And he had what he called a big note guitar method, you know, teach yourself guitar. So I sent away for this thing, and I started to learn to play guitar. And then there was a banjo player in my brother's band, and I... I really wanted to learn to play the banjo. So uh, I guess with my bar mitzvah money, I went out and we bought a banjo and I started taking lessons. And then I eventually decided I wanted to play mandolin. So this, is, I, this started around when I was around 13, 12, 13. How did you meet Dave Grisman, the great mandolin player? David, I saw play at one of these, what they used to call hoots, that my brother's band played at. They were on the bill. So when I wanted to learn mandolin, I was able to get his number and gave him a call, and uh, that started a, a lifelong friendship. And he, of course, is a mandolin player. Mandolin player, yeah, yeah. Much more than a mandolin player, but yeah, yeah. And did he introduce you to Bill Monroe? You know, everything I did prior to playing the mandolin was really setting me up for the mandolin. You know, I played guitar and then really got into banjo. There used to be uh, in Washington Square Park in New York on Sunday, Groups of musicians would get together and play, and there'd be one group playing bluegrass, one old time, one topical songs, different things. When I used to go down every Sunday, so I began playing in bands, but I was banjo-oriented, so I was mainly listening to people like Earl Scruggs and Don Reno and Bill Keith and all, all these great banjo players. But there were a lot of really great banjo players. And I was just another one of them, and I was the youngest. You know, all these guys were college-age kids. I was, by that time, maybe 14. You were the kid. I was the kid, yeah. And I started hearing, you know, on these records, these mandolin breaks, and they started, I, I got the chills when I heard some of them. And two players, one was a guy named Earl Taylor, played a song called White House Blues on a Folkways record called Mountain Music Bluegrass Style. 
and he basically played his own version of a Bill Monroe solo on that. And Everett Lilly, who just passed away from a group called the Lilly Brothers, he played with Flat and Scruggs. He took a very, very simple mandolin solo on there. I'd get the chills when I heard it. So I decided this is what I want to do. I went out and uh, bought a very inexpensive Czech mandolin and went to see David. And the thing is that my hands were already developed from playing guitar and banjo, and I had an understanding of the musical language. So what he did was he said, you know, you have to listen to Bill Monroe. He basically gave me, intentionally or unintentionally really, you know, basically a, a course in aesthetics of music. And uh, through getting into Bill Monroe, a whole, a whole different thing opened up for me musically and emotionally, you know. Monroe's playing that just spoke to you? Well, there are a few things at play here. You know, one being that I was 15. Okay, there's the great romance of another culture, so to speak. I don't, I don't know if it's ex exoticism, because in America, everyone heard bluegrass anyway growing up. We all knew fiddle tunes and things like that. You know, Turkey and the Straw. And all, you know, we all, we've all, all heard this stuff. But Monroe was presented as being the real deal. So it's like you become sort of a... Um, an initiate in a small club of people who know the real truth about something, so to speak. You understand what I'm talking about. This exists in all music, and it probably exists in every field. But when you're 15, it's a very, for lack of a better word, empowering type of thing. Like, this guy is it. And coming with that becomes a certain almost uncritical acceptance of this person who becomes a larger-than-life figure. But for a 15-year-old, that, that's great. You don't really have much understanding beyond that. So what was it about Monroe? I mean, it wasn't just Monroe, but he was a super creative mandolin player. He did all these very subtle and powerful things on the mandolin. You know, he developed his own language and, and was able to speak it very, very well and very creatively. At this point in his career, he had a great band and he was super creative. All the great people in bluegrass played with him. He was a great songwriter. He was a great singer. And his music had a tremendous intensity and integrity. And the thing about Monroe was that he, like, unlike today when people really try and peg you as being this or that musically to fit into a particular box, Monroe in many ways is coming out of the, the minstrel or the vaudeville tradition. And in terms of recording, what he did was, you know, well... Was he a gospel band? He did a lot of the most beautiful gospel quartets or gospel songs that, are, that have been recorded. No, what, you know, was he a fiddle tune band? Or you know, he was the avant-garde southern instrumental band at that point. All the great players who were innovators wanted to play with him on fiddle and on banjo. He did that. Was, was he a blues band? He was a great blues singer. 
was he a, a country sort of crooning band? He did great sentimental songs and love songs. I mean, he did, he did all these things. And in fact, when he toured, he had comedians with him and other things. So he was really coming out of a much broader picture of doing a whole bunch of things. And what it did, it obviously reflected his interaction with the white and the black musicians in his area as a child and music that he heard on, uh, on radio. He played, a lot of his stuff was very influenced by New Orleans jazz. You know, was he a jazz band? He basically took all these influences and personalized it and put it in one package. And uh, it was just part of country music. But I guess commercially it became known as Bluegrass because of the Bluegrass Boys. But the name really doesn't mean anything in itself. It's like bluegrass. Well, well, Klezmer comes from, from the Hebrew word Klezmer, which means like instrument of song. So Klezmer is referring to musicians so to speak, or musical instruments. And like I say, the musicians themselves never refer to the music as that. But while you were still young, a teenager, though a later teenager, you moved in a different direction from bluegrass. You became very interested in jazz, and you worked with the jazz saxophonist Richard Grando. Right, right. So what, what happened was, uh, through David, you know, he um, exposed me to uh, Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti, and uh, Stefan Grappelli and um, Django Reinhardt. You know, I began hanging out more and more with the going down. There were country music parks for transplanted Southerners in Pennsylvania, so I'd go down to see all the musicians. And, you know, I'm, I started meeting musicians, thinking of moving down to Nashville to play there. But at the same time, I know Richard Green, who played with Bill Monroe then, violinist, was telling me about all the musicians were listening to, to different types of jazz. I started going down to uh, jazz record shops and I started listening to Stuff Smith and then listening to jazz on the radio and I started really getting interested in, in uh, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Monk and Mingus and uh, my brother had some Cannibal Adderley and Jackie McLean records. I started listening to them and at around the same time, I remember I heard, I think it was Strawberry Fields by the Beatles and I said, this is incredible. So a little before I was 17, you know, I'd realized that as great as the instrumental tradition is in bluegrass, the deepest emotions in bluegrass are conveyed through the singing. That's the heaviest stuff. Not that the instrumentals aren't heavy, they're great, but the singing is really the heart of everything in many ways. And I'm not a singer. So I heard, I'd heard Albert Eiler. His record it was uh, it's called Live in Greenwich Village. It was on Vanguard. And he did this song called uh, The Truth is Marching In. And he was exploring at that time basically almost like Eastern European folk melodies and then sort of playing them faster and faster until they, they became absorbed in, in a pulse, in, a, in the palette of the drummer playing colors. You, you know what I'm talking about. And Albert would, and Donald would do their thing. And for like a 17-year-old, you know, in 1967, I mean, you know, this was... It was intense and expressive, and yeah. And you began studying the saxophone. Yeah, so I decided I wanted to, I could have easily gotten into guitar, but I didn't want to, one, I didn't want to have any of the bluegrass ideas carry over, because I'd already done that. And if I played guitar, I'd have those finger memory type of things coming in. I wanted something completely different. And I felt that through breathing, there could be a, an additional avenue of expression. And was there? Yeah, yeah. So, as it turns out, a banjo player named Mark Horowitz, who I worked with uh, in a number of bands in New York, his brother is someone named David Horowitz, 
or is a, a, a genius, you know, jazz piano player. I said, I want to study saxophone, ask your brother. And so he g gave me Richard Grandel's phone number. So Richard, was, uh, who was an amazing, amazing person, said, okay, listen, why don't you come out and, and we'll talk and I'll see if I'll take you on as a student. So uh, I went out to see him. I remember the first lesson was, <laughs> we, we discussed for about an hour to whether God existed or not. And then he said, okay, I'll take you on as a student. And that was that. And Richard was like a, a brilliant man, a renaissance man. And he had come through the bebop scene. He was part of, uh, I guess what they used to call the new thing in, uh, in jazz back then. So he, would, he could play like that, but he was into somewhere a little bit more mainstream. He was, of course, very into Coltrane, also very into Sonny Rollins. And I know he'd worked a little bit with Art Blakey. And so I became sort of almost like a houseboy there. I just spent hours there once, twice a week and became very close with him. And he was in, into Carl Jung and all sorts of different types of religious things and music from all over the world and things like that. So this all had a big influence on me. So practically around that time, um, I started playing saxophone in rock and roll bands, blues bands, free jazz bands, you know, whatever I could do. And, and I came along the mandolin and sort of, you know, adopted to those situations. But... You know, I, I never thought I'd be uh, playing any sort of bluegrass again or anything like that. I, I thought I'd be playing some sort of saxophone-oriented music. Now, when was Breakfast Special? That came about around 1971. What had happened was, you know, I went to college for a very short time and dropped out, and I looked, I wanted to work as a musician. Uh, out of nowhere, I got a call to play with a, uh, one of the groups that was a percussive breakfast special called Country Cooking. And they were, that group had, uh, was led by Peter Wernick. In the group was Tony Trishka and Russ Barenberg, two well-known, uh, very innovative musicians. And they were writing their own music, playing pretty much all originals, and, and playing music that was bluegrass-based, but really northern and really reflecting a whole other emotional type of thing. Very different, uh, different feelings, different ideas, different, very innovative band. So they hired me to do, to do this record with them, which, it, which I did, you know, and I played saxophone on one piece and mandolin on others. And by this time my mandolin playing had completely changed. It developed in, in, into sort of the beginnings of what it is now. And uh, it was very free and very um, a different harmonic language than uh, bluegrass uses in a different rhythmic language. And uh, from there, I started, you know, just getting gigs and, and making the scene in the village. I needed to work. And uh, I ran into uh, David Bromberg. I hadn't seen David in a few years. I, so he invited me down to play with him. He was with Columbia Records at that point. And after a few times, so I became his first, you know, other than the bass player, the late Steve Berg, great electric guitarist, his first regular side man. All of a sudden, I was on salary, you know, working for a, a Columbia recording artist, and we're traveling all over the country. And you know, he got me involved in the sessions we did, like with, with Dylan, you know, the Grateful Dead, you know, Dr. John, you know, lots of different people. And uh, I always felt there was a uh, an invisible wall between amateur and professional. And going on the road with him, I felt I sort of walked you know, through that door and uh, got to the other end. Anyway, uh, he hired uh, 
two other musicians who I would been spending time with in New York, Kenny Kosek and Roger Mason, and at some point we decided to form Breakfast Special. That's around 1971. And, you know, there I was, <laughs> you know, playing mandolin again. being part of a group like Breakfast Special to playing klezmer music. How did that trajectory work? Basically, through my uh, working with Richard Grando, I began re-listening to some of the, the old traditional Jewish and shamanic music I heard as, as a child. And I began listening to lots of other related ethnic folk musics, but, and, and non-related as well. And I remember at one of the breakfast special gigs, I met Zef Feldman, came down to see us, and we hit it off and we started playing together. He played the Persian Santuri. And we worked on a number of different things, and I started studying with different people. There was a, uh, a Santuri player, a uh, Greek Santuri player named Paul Embarras. So I studied on mandolin, and he taught me how to play in different meters and stuff. Then I got pretty close with um, Pericles Halkias, an Ebert clarinet player. And then I started studying with, with two great Azerbaijani musicians, uh, Zvulunov Shalomov and Antronik Arastamian. So I was doing all this music, bring it back, and me and Zev were playing this and working up repertoires and things like that. Okay, let me just interrupt you. Yeah. What was it that just kept drawing you into different kinds of music? What was that curiosity that just kept you moving all the time? First of all, there was a lot of great music that was very accessible. Not very accessible, but if you, if you wanted it, you could find it. And this is before the whole world music thing. So there were still lots of master musicians who were unaffected by rock and roll and all this other stuff. Not that that's bad, but I'm just saying, you know, you had people who represented culminations of traditions living in the five boroughs. And, you know, you get recordings of these things and see these people play. And all this music really moved me. And I had in the back of my mind an idea of somehow combining all this stuff in my own way. But... My first idea was to just to sort of really learn how to play all this music. Up until, you know, my around 30, I was just studying with all sorts of different people. I was always doing different things, studying with different people, and trying to broaden my horizons and trying to enhance what I was doing. So at one point, I remember uh, after breakfast special ended, I mean, I was just playing lots of different bands. You know, I decided that I was getting more interested in Judaism and my own personal family background, and I decided that, you know, I found 78s of Dave Taras and Abe Schwartz and, you know, all these great, you know, traditional Jewish instrumentalists. I said, you know, this, this music is really my heritage, you know, it's particularly where, you know, where my father's family comes from. This is, this is, if I was born there and as a musician, this is probably what I'd be playing. So I said, just for myself, I want to learn to play it to keep it alive. Thank you. 
That was klezmer clarinetist, mandolin player, composer, and 2012 National Heritage Fellow, Andy Statman. Next week, I pick up with Andy where we left off. His embrace of klezmer, his relationship with the great clarinetist, Dave Terrace, and Andy's musical marriage of klezmer, jazz, blues, and bluegrass, culminating in the recently released CD, Old Brooklyn. And mark your calendars for October 4th. That's when the 2012 National Heritage Fellows perform in Washington, D.C. Along with Andy, honorees include dobro player Mike Aldridge and Tejano accordion player Flaco Jimenez. It will be a night to remember. Go to arts.gov and click on National Heritage Fellows for more information. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Yosel, from the album, Abe Schwartz, The Klezmer King. Use courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Excerpt from Wedding March, from the album, Jewish Klezmer Music. Performed by Zev Feldman and Andy Statman. Use courtesy of Shanaki Records. Excerpts from The Brothers Ben Hasid, from the album Breakfast Special. Performed by Breakfast Special. Use courtesy of New Rounder. Excerpt from Andy's Ramble, from the CD Andy's Ramble. Use courtesy of New Rounder. Excerpt from Hasidic Dance from Galicia, from the album Andy Statman Klezmer Orchestra. Use courtesy of Shanaki Records. Excerpt from Kazatsky, from the album Songs of Our Fathers, performed by Andy Statman and David Grisman. Use courtesy of Acoustic Disc. Yosel is a traditional Yiddish folk tune performed by Ben Schwartz. All other songs are composed or arranged by Andy Statman, who also performs them. The Artworks Podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. Now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Remember, next week, more great music and insight from Andy Statman. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.